Welcome to the SG Engage podcast, where it's all social good all the time. Sit back and relax as the brightest minds from across the social good community engage with trends, big ideas, and best practices to help you drive impact. Hey, everyone. This is Rachel Hutchison, and I have the honor and pleasure of leading corporate social responsibility at Blackboard. I'm here today on the SG Engage podcast with Marcus Walton, the president and CEO of Grantmakers for Effective Organizations, or GEO. So welcome, Marcus. Hi there. So let's just jump into this conversation, Marcus. First thing, tell us a little bit about yourself, what you've been doing, and a little bit about GEO. Great. Well, you know, I'm, I'm a guy from Cleveland, Ohio, originally grew up in the 70s and 80s there. Uh, and, and stay local for for uh, my early education and then spent the second portion of life, so to speak, around different parts of the country and really providing me with a, an interesting point of view that I've carried into my work. I mentioned Cleveland in particular because at the time it was still a thriving community. It was a, a bunch of different hubs of uh, ethnicities. Uh, so you you have the uh, kind of African American community, the Croatian community, the Polish community, a Puerto Rican community. Each of us in our own sections of the globe. And little did I know how much that would be leave an impression on on me as an, a child that I carried into adulthood with my work. Uh, but suffice it to say, uh, over the years, I saw the same community that was so loving and so caring uh, deteriorate. Uh, with the economic, the economic distress, the Rust Belt, the the removal of factories, steel mill industry, the real decline throughout the late seventies and eighties uh, that then contributed to rampant drug use, physical deterioration of the infrastructure, housing. Uh, it was devastating, and so the impression that that left on me was such that I wanted to do something about it. Uh, and I wanted to do something directly about it. So I went out into the world, so to speak, beyond my borders to learn from what other communities had done to address that. And then came back, had the luxury and privilege of coming back to be a program officer in Northeast Ohio at the Cleveland Foundation in particular to practice grant making to make a difference. And the journey hasn't stopped since. One of the legs of the journey after the Cleveland Foundation was uh, into what we call philanthropy servant organizations, you know, one of which was the Association of Black Foundation Executives, uh, which is the first of its kind. Uh, it's coming up on its 50th year anniversary next year. Uh, and it's connected to the Council on Foundations, which is, in, in a sense, the trade association for philanthropy. Grandmakers for Effective Organizations, GEO, is another one of those philanthropy servant organizations. And we exist as a community of funders committed to transforming philanthropic culture and practice by connecting members to the resources and relationships needed to support thriving and nonprofits, thriving nonprofits and communities. Uh, and essentially, we're all about creating a forum for grantmakers to hear from and absorb uh, resources that are useful, that are actionable uh, in order to create the kind of conditions that contribute to thriving communities around the country and even the world. Yeah. And Marcus, I didn't realize that we had a, a connection of sorts. So I grew up right across that border from Ohio in southwestern Pennsylvania. 
in a little town ah, called yes. Washington, Washington, Pennsylvania, where Washington and Jefferson College is. And a lot of what you described is what I saw growing up in the 70s yes. and the 80s. I graduated from high school in 1985. And, you know, the unemployment and the, you know, just yeah. distress that was happening to the land, et cetera. So it's, uh, and and the, the diverse communities that were there, both racially diverse, but yeah. also, you know, people whose parents spoke Russian or gr- your grandparents spoke Russian yeah. at home, Russian, Polish, Greek, Italian. That, you right. know, I always tell people I grew up near Pittsburgh because they never hear of Washington, but you probably know Washington. <laughs> so let's talk about racial equity. It's not a new topic in philanthropy by any means. A lot of right. work has been focused on over the years internally within organizations, but also externally in society as a whole, but there's still so much more to do. So are you hopeful that what's happening right now will actually move the needle in a more significant way? Well, you know, so that's almost a two-part question, even though I don't think you meant it in that way. You can take it any way you mean it. (laughs) Thank you very much. First, I'll say, am I hopeful? Yes. I'm hopeful not so much just for the moment, but more so because I've done this work now for 12 years. And initially, for two years or so, and this, but, but by this work, I mean engaging foundations in a conversation involving racial equity. And I'll ex- describe a little bit what that means. But in, 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 in the early years, so to speak, the conversation was making the case, was, hey, colleagues in philanthropy, Uh, There's an approach to thinking about this work that helps us be more impactful. We have an impact on the communities that we want to support. And it's a historical in nature. We consider the way the historical variables that have contributed to how things are today. And we organize our resources in such a way that allows us to be more nuanced in our approach and more targeted in our investment. And, uh, And we would talk about the different examples of systems, inequalities, right, inequities that right now are just kind of commonplace, as you mentioned, in the in the current context. But back then, we've had to prove using statistics that majority, usually black communities, but black and brown communities generally were disproportionately impacted uh, in ways that other communities were not. They were doing worse off regardless of the issue, whether it was housing, health, uh, you name it, education, performance, right, achievement gap, uh, and across all of the different areas that you can name, these communities tended to be worse. And because of that, we understood that there was something within the system, or at least it was worth asking a question to get a sense of like, to what extent is this connected to something that is historically discriminatory, right? Or there was a policy that was discriminatory in nature. And then over time, we continue to make decisions without correcting that policy or something that was on its face race neutral, but didn't consider the disproportionate experiences of the groups that it intended to serve, right? So making the case was was a, an uphill battle, Rachel. It was it was challenging work. Uh, but then all of a sudden, and this was around the time of the Obama uh, administration coming into play, uh, all of a sudden we went from that to, okay, show us some examples of foundations that have done this. <laughs> like literally it was, it was overnight. And there started to be conversations of, well, is this still relevant? I mean, we have a, a African-American 
president in office. Aren't we, are we not in a re- post-racial scenario? You remember that first race, post-racial conversation? I do and, remember and so, that. I also remember that. Yeah, Pony, and it was, it was really scary. Yeah, that Atlantic article, uh, my president was black, really addressed that directly. Yeah, but that, those were times where uh, it was there was a lot of uncertainty. And, and But to have experienced the transition in, in what seemed like overnight, and then to continue this work in a way now where I was brought into GEO to support its racial equity work and to support members to uh, adopt this kind of practice into its work. It, it's fascinating. So I can only be hopeful because I've seen how quickly change can happen. In this particular moment, I'm fascinated. I'm flabbergasted. It is not logical to me. And yet it's so powerful. It can't be ignored. Whatever is happening both generates change, it, but it also generates a kind of feeling that is new to me in that I've never anticipated something so much because I've had such a long view on what the work. And now it feels like it might not be as long term as it once felt before. Yeah, I find a similar sense of hopefulness in that exact point, that exact space, that we're Mm -hmm. going through things that are very difficult right now. But wow, like maybe we're actually going to get over some of these hurdles in a meaningful way. Yeah. Wouldn't that be something? uh, Be something. So um, you wrote a blog post. I think it was called Hope is Not a Strategy for Change. That's where correct. you talk about how we need to go beyond being hopeful and take decisive action, adopting a generational commitment to advancing racial equity through collective action. And you outlined four steps that responsive philanthropy needs to take. So can you talk about those steps? Sure. And thank you so much. I, I, I was so shocked to see how much uh, energy to the note generated from college and continues to generate. And, and yeah, grateful for the opportunity to contribute something that people find meaningful. The, the thing I like to say about these actions is that, uh, that it should be preceded by at a minimum. So at a minimum, we should be framing the issue, uh, acknowledging and illuminating how institutional barriers to progress are real and persist today. And, and I'm speaking to the past where we had to actually make the case that this thing matters. That, that naming one's race, naming one's orientation, sexual orientation, naming one's access to transportation, where you live in a particular geography, all of those variables matter because we have different experiences. The quality of our experiences differ according to those variables. The reason we say racial equity is because Race is such a predominant variable. It determines, we can look at someone's race and determine the extent to which they are not benefiting from a situation. And so until race is not a determinant, we're saying uh, it's important for us to adopt this type of approach, right? We want to prioritize addressing the inequities that are structural in nature, meaning they are, we focus on the underpinning, the, the conditions that create the, the examples of uh, inequity, not just the symptoms. And I'll talk about that a little more. more. So first is framing the issue. Second is focusing on the root cause, as it just alluded to. We really want to prioritize eliminating the, the barriers, right? Uh, acknowledging the barriers where they exist and getting down to the 
to the policies that have contributed to current conditions over time, whether discriminatory on their faces or not, whether race neutral or not. But we, we need to take into context the broader implications of the times in which decisions were made and the impact of those decisions on communities generationally. And by, by acknowledging that, it helps us determine whether a, a critical variable of a potential intervention or solution is specific to race, because sometimes it may not be. But we understand that, that in, in the history of the United States, race has been such a barrier and has, and it really is a social and political construct that has been used to separate groups and hoard power while disadvantaging other groups, marginalizing other groups. Uh, we're saying it's important to name the group that's being marginalized, collect the data in order to understand who's being impacted disproportionately, and then target our interventions accordingly. Uh, so just briefly, just to, to recap those steps, is framing the issue, is focusing on the root cause, is disaggregating data, which is what I described there about being really targeting our in our analysis and understanding all of the different identities that a group, uh, the variables that define our identities, but centering, like being explicit about race uh, so that we can make the most nuanced approach, the most tactical decision in our investments. And then lastly, Rachel, we want to exercise power. And this is positional power. This is using our influence as well as our dollars, as well as our networks in order to change the rules within our organizations that erode trust or put individual in individuals in harm's way in any kind of way uh, and perpetuate race neutral, colorblind, uh, grant making practices. We want to be very targeted and explicit. We want to be tactical and surgical in our approach to supporting marginalized communities. So you work in your role as the head of GEO with all these different foundations. Yeah. And we've seen a handful of foundations leading the way recently and saying that they're going to, you know, obviously a number of them were immediately focused on COVID, but really focusing on the racial equity movement. So what are you seeing yes. about this in your role? And so first tell us what you're seeing. I also would love to know um, what advice you'd give other funders to jump into this. Ah, no, thank you. Thank you. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. Uh, and, and I'm going to be really frank because I appreciate these opportunities as rare to have the kinds of conversation that we're having. What I'm observing on one hand is an inclination to do something, to, to react, right? On the heels of, of the, especially of the violence that was kind of captured in a bottle in the George Floyd incident, but also some uh, surrounding or, or additional incidents in other cities around the country around the same time. What I saw was that despite our feelings, there was a, a, a lot of uh, charged emotions, politically charged, quite frankly, connected to the current administration. I mentioned Obama, and now we're in a different time, and, and it feels it's a visceral experience for so many people in the country. I saw that playing out in our institution, and, and our colleagues wanted to call. We wanted to have calls to action. So there's all these calls to actions. Philanthropy should do this. Philanthropy should do that. 
And and some of them are, are fantastic, right? Consider, for example, providing more investments, uh, expanding the percentage of dollars that you give from your institutions beyond the 5%. Uh, the, the payout is what we call it in the sector, right? That is something that is a reasonable uh, suggestion. And we signed on to, to a letter as with our colleague organizations to the field. Consider these things. We also at GEO have a group of grant-making practices that we call our vision for smarter grant-making, which talk about the importance of providing flexible funding for nonprofits, for grantees, uh, for supporting capacity building. Uh, uh, several of these um, principles that we believe represent responsive philanthropy, meaning not just reacting based upon a sense of urgency, uh, but a really thoughtful, humanizing experience that acknowledges the expertise of these groups and communities and advocating, uh, providing the most flexible set of resources for those groups to to do the important business that they're doing without uh, the kind of bureaucratic constraints that can sometimes just exacerbate a situation and slow it down. And 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 so my observation has translated into uh, an acknowledgement, a breakthrough moment for me. And I'm, cha- I'm challenging ourselves as, as uh, my staff in particular to consider what it means to take a breath first. Consider what it means to not think about what's practical in this moment, but to actually see this as a moment to think about what's possible, right? To be audacious. In our thinking, what does it mean to be audacious in this moment where truly, in many ways, the pragmatic is inappropriate, right? The time for pragmatism is just, it just seems out of place right now, uh, or, or at least it seems inconsistent with the aspirations of the moment, the, zeit, the, 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 the zeitgeist. And so what I've Encouraged, and what you have started to see in some of our writings, including the the writing about hope not being a strategy, is for us to take the long view. And when I talk about taking a deep breath, Rachel, I'm saying before, and just like as an individual, before we make a decision and head down uh, a particular course of action, let's ground ourselves in the current moment. Uh, meaning, let's do our homework. Let's acknowledge the harm, the challenges, the opportunities, the people, and the variety of resources that may be at our discretion to to employ in ways that we just haven't considered before. Uh, And that also often means coordination. So not going it alone, uh, but identifying potential partners, colleagues, people who are allied in different ways, who are moving in the same direction around a particular set of goals. And so what I often say is, in these moments, as GEO, we're interested in organizing our colleagues around a a particular set of common agendas. Uh, But the question to me is, what is the shared vision, a unifying vision for the philanthropic sector, right? And I feel like that's what we often miss in these moments where we want to address with urgency the conditions, the pain, the struggle that we see within our communities. 
we miss the opportunity to ask the bigger question of our collective vision. And my experience is that without a vision, people perish. Hmm. So in this collective vision, you're not just talking about the foundations that are specifically focused on racial equity, right? You're talking about any social good organization. So why is it critical that we all look at our work through a racial equity lens? That's a great question. Racial equity is not a focus. When we, when we focus on racial equity, it becomes something more than a tool. It becomes the destination. And what we're really saying is your entity exists, right? We have all of this infrastructure. Racial equity helps us align it. It's a framework. It's a set of organizing principles that ensures that we're taking a historical account of how we've gotten to where we are. So we're being circumspect in our analysis and we're not leaving anyone out that should be included in the conversation. So we're engaging the communities, but really tapping into our collective genius in order to develop strategies that are responsive to the moment. And so if we don't do that, then you end up with checklists. You end up with things that feel contrite. You end up with things that don't have depth. They're shallow and 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 uh, quick, right? The quick and shallow as opposed to thoughtful and deep. And so we want to focus on impact now with our work. And that's what a racial equity analysis allows us to do because it's inclusive and incorporates the corporate partners with the nonprofit partners, with the organizers on the street, the service providers within communities. And each of those perspectives are considered when developing strategies. So they're not siloed and operating independent of each other. And quite frankly, when we operate in that way, we're also making the most of our resources, right? We have a more efficient process, uh, which allows us to uh, deploy our resources in different and creative ways. But the more voices we include in the process, the more circumspect our approach and the more promising, the more, the more likely our impact will align with our aspirations for our work. So you called this the long game, but a hopeful long game that you feel like you're going to see some real progress on. Is, is that a fair assessment? I, I, absolutely. Uh, my, my encouragement is that we move beyond the symptomatic. Uh, may, can I use an example? When we sure. talk about? Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, this, this is a really important point that I, I hope will address a couple of the questions that you've asked about equity. Uh, because at, at, at its core, I'm also inviting us to consider a charity model versus a change model, right? There's a reason why we include change in these conversations. Impact is associated with change. And so my colleagues in Flint, Michigan, you may recall there was a, a, a horrible uh, scenario with water, yep. with unclean water. Uh, and we tend to do a fellowship there with a group of colleagues around 2016, 2015. So we were at the four, the front end of this being a national conversation and we were learning about conditions there. I wish water was the only one, but there are others, housing, education, you know, the gamut. Uh, but anyway, if we approach the situation in Flint from a charity model, we send 
bottles of water, bottled water from all over the country in the world, right? We parachute it in, we helicopter it in, we make sure citizens have that water, but we never fix the pipes. We never replace the infrastructure to provide clean water to the current and subsequent generation in Flint, Michigan, right? And so replacing the pipes is the change strategy. That is the infrastructure approach. When we talk about structural in nature, every issue area has a structure similar to those pipes for providing clean water for the next generation of Flint residents. We're saying adopt that lens to our work. Consider whether, what does it look like for us to do the both and? Let's absolutely meet meet the immediate needs of our colleagues and let's consider our resources, uh, which of them, how might we contribute to the structural changes that uh, the situations require. Racial equity analysis allows us the process just by following the steps in that process, we will always consider both impact inputs uh, in order to produce the highest impact. Now, lastly, I'll say it might just be that someone else is taking care of the uh, making sure Flint residents get the water that they need on a day-to-day basis, right? So that would suggest to me that we have an opportunity to be complementary in our investment. And so we don't, it, it does not necessarily serve in that situation that we use our limited resources to provide more bottled water. Instead, we can start to organize conversations perhaps with our, within our municipal government or our, our private sector colleagues and start to explore possibilities for correction for addressing the structural uh, nature of the issue. And so it's, it's, it's both collaborative and it's structural in nature. Yeah, I love that example. It's, it makes it very clear. And, you know, you've been talking about philanthropy and foundations in particular, but you just mentioned, you know, partnering. And I'm someone who believes that we need everybody at the table and we need, you know, businesses yes. can be a huge, a wonderful part of a shared value approach of bringing value to society and help to society and nonprofits yes. and people and governments. And yes, we need it all. You know, I think we have a, a world that likes to put things in buckets and we think of the do good work is over here and the make money work is over right. on, on, you know, the other side of the street. And, you know, it, it's all actually connected. I think this world of COVID um, in particular teaches us how interconnected we are in a way that perhaps we forgot and how global we are at the same time in that interconnectedness. Yeah, you know, it's interesting to me because I often I'm I'm very conscientious about defining the we in those sentences. And in part, it's important to to be clear about who we're talking about in those situations, because there's a group of people that it's so important to acknowledge have been doing this work for so long. I mean, there were people who taught me this work. It was a handful of folks, but there were people who 15 years ago had already been doing important work around racial equity and making the case and collecting information and testing it out inside of their organizations uh, back then. And so I'm, I'm one of uh, a, a lineage of these uh, leaders of this work, right, for effectively leading change in a way that not only humanizes the experience for all involved, uh, but really does emphasize thriving in communities uh, addressing some of the generational harm at its core, naming it, 
so we can make amends and replace these structures that are inequitable with ones that produce equitable outcomes. So we could keep talking about this for a really long time, but alas, um, I have one final question for you. So where would you direct people to go? Are there resources that you could recommend so that listeners of the podcast could learn more and um, understand what they can do? Yes. So first I mentioned the uh, smarter grant making uh, resources for GEO. And so you, if you go to our, our website, that is geofunders.org, you can look up GR Vision for Smarter Grant Making. And it has in detail all of the things I talked about today that are um, very specific steps and approaches for adopting a more responsive approach. Uh, your your grant making efforts, and it also identifies how we partner better with our colleagues that are grantees or service providers w- within grant making communities. I also, uh, Rachel, offer a reading list. Uh, I've kind of over time compiled a list of resources that were useful to me, and I believe that you know there, this is one of many approaches to leading change. This one, I, I just have found to uh, produce a particular type of result um, reliably. And so I offer it as what has worked for me for people who may be interested in producing similar results. And so just uh, I'll, there are five resources that I'll name. And, and if there's an opportunity maybe to provide something as a link, then I'll forward those to you, too. Uh, it's great. Uh, so I'll name uh, one of my favorite books that, that really makes the case in, around housing is called The Color of Law uh, by Rich, Richard Rothstein. Uh, there's an article uh, named The Curb Effect, the, cu- the Curb Cut Effect, excuse me, The Curb Cut Effect. It talks about uh, those, if you, if you think about uh, walking in any busy city and you see the ramped kind of carve out in the, as you cross the street, that's called a curb cut. It was originally done for, created for people in wheelchair and, and with limited mobility. Um, but as many of my colleagues have learned, we used to talk about, we probably more of us use them for our suitcases when going back and forth <laughs> from airports, hotels, right? Uh, but that's an example of racial equity practice, right? That was specifically organized and promoted for for people of diverse ability, and yet it had a universal good. That's the same impact of this racial equity approach. And then there's a really important set of resources from grant making with a racial equity lens, that's what it's called, from our colleagues at uh, PRE, P-R-E, and Grant Craft, uh, grant making with a racial equity lens. There's a part one and a part two, and awake to woke to work. Uh, from Equity in the Center. Just fascinating resources uh, that's available. Again, I'll share a broader set of resources because if, if you don't read the case for reparations from Ta-Nehisi Coates, it's fascinating. It was probably written in 2016. Phenomenal set of resources that points out inequity over time and why the historical approach is important to include in our decisions today. Uh, and California Newsreel has a fascinating set of resources, um, Race the Power of an Illusion. 
Uh, but I, I look forward to sharing that with each of you and, and just wish everyone, you know, start where you are, whatever resources are, whether it's a podcast, uh, seeing on radio is a good one, or uh, whether it's your local community radio or even articles right now, there's so many articles being written on what we can do and where we can start. Uh, just Let's just get started somewhere and commit to this beyond the particular moment or beyond this summer. Uh, and think about our long-term commit- commitment to integrating this into a normal set of practices. Well, Marcus, I want to thank you for joining us today on the SG Engage podcast. This has been a great conversation. We'll make sure that when we send out the podcast, we can also include a link to your resources. So we'll definitely follow up on that. And to the listeners great. of this podcast, I just want to say thank you for um, joining us. Uh, and please tune in to more episodes. So this is Rachel Hutchison signing off. Thanks so much.